Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all and welcome you to our class on covenant theology. If you had Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. God has created the world, everything in seven literal days, the seventh day resting. And then in verse 15 of chapter 2, we have the covenant of works being ratified between God and man. Genesis 2:15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely Join me in prayer, please. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day and the privilege and opportunity that it is of gathering again together with your people to sit under the teaching and preaching of your word and to worship you uh, with our voices. Father, we, we pray that you would be pleased by the worship that we offer you this morning. Even though it is small and feeble, Yet, Father, we pray that it would be a sweet sound in your ear. We pray that, Father, as we sit under uh, the ministry of your word, that you, by your spirit, would go forth and uh, apply the scriptures to our hearts. Make us to be quick to hear and quick to uh, allow the scriptures to bathe and transform our hearts. pray that you'd bless this time this morning as we look at the... Uh, covenant of works, and that you give us clarity in our understanding and uh, ability to see the ramifications of uh, this covenant more clearly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we looked at the covenant of redemption, the covenant that necessitated all of the others uh, that followed it, the covenant of redemption, different than any other covenant of scripture, one that is between God the Father and God the Son. An agreement between them concerning uh, how redemption would be accomplished. The son agreeing to go, be incarnate, live and walk, and then die under uh, the wrath of his father. And in the resurrection, the ascension, and in the exaltation of Christ, we see the father's uh, public approval of what the son has done in meeting the conditions of that covenant and exalting him to a place and a name above every other name greater authority, and a kingdom. And that covenant of redemption uh, being first planned, set in motion, as I said, the other covenants of Scripture, and all of those covenants are pushing towards that one new covenant of grace that Christ ratified uh, with his blood. But the foundational covenant uh, within the covenant of redemption working is the covenant of works. Um, this is one of the most important covenants of Scripture to understand, and we're going to spend some time on it. There has, uh, in our modern day, especially in Reformed Baptist circles, been a push to deny the presence of the covenant of works. Uh, in my reading and researching, finding a number of people uh, in the Reformed Baptist world that uh, reject that, uh, and even reject the idea that the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith teaches uh, that there was a covenant of works made. Uh, so we're going to be spending some time uh, 
this morning defining the covenant of works, answering some objections to the presence of the covenant of works, and then addressing the scriptural basis for it. We'll be spending time looking uh, in Genesis 2 and looking at our definition of a covenant, seeking to answer those questions, and then looking outside of Genesis 2 for other passages of scripture that aid us in recognizing uh, the covenantal features of God's transactions with Adam in the garden. We'll see how far we get this morning. So the covenant of works, um, as I said, it's, it's an essential foundational uh, piece of covenant theology and of scripture, uh, and that, as I said, many today reject or deny uh, this covenant. And one of the, the common objections is, well, the word covenant does not appear in scripture until the time of Noah. How in the world can uh, a, a relationship between God and men be called a covenant if Scripture itself doesn't explicitly use the word covenant? And that's a great question, uh, and there are areas within theology where Scripture doesn't use explicit terms in locations, but yet in other places more clearly defines and reveals what happened uh, in that original account. Uh, the original account often doesn't contain the fullness of what was revealed and what was discussed uh, by God. Uh, and there, again, are examples of that in Scripture. And the covenant of works is one of those great examples. That Scripture, in the account in which the covenant was ratified and first given, gives important information. But if we didn't have the infallible New Testament interpreting and uh, increasing the, the depth of understanding of what happened here and the significance of this, um, we would, uh, I think, struggle. And along with the, the New Testament, there are some Old Testament passages uh, that are very enlightening and very helpful. And so we're going to look at those. So the concept of the covenant of works, it dates back all the way to the time of the early church. Uh, Augustine, he lived uh, at the beginning of the 5th century, died in 430. He was one of the first to use language describing God's relationship with Adam in the garden being covenantal in nature. And he writes, and this is in uh, his book, The City of God, uh, book 16, chapter 27. The first covenant which was made with man, with the first man, is just this. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So that's the very first clear reference uh, that this relationship between God and Adam is covenantal. Uh, and we find that in, again, Augustine uh, dying in 430. Another important passage uh, that we will return to in our discussion, uh, one that there has been debate over how to translate it. Um, one of the very first people to translate it, Jerome, in translating the Bible from the Greek New Testament into the Latin, translated the verse Hosea 6-7, they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. Um, other people translate that word Adam as man, because Adam, in the Hebrew, Adam, means man. And it depends upon the context and also the presence of the definite article, the man. Clearly be um, Adam rather than man in general. So Hosea 6-7 is a very important text. And it's speaking in the context of the nation of Israel, saying that the nation of Israel, like Adam, have transgressed or broken the covenant of God. So Jerome translating this verse in this way, that 
they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant reveals his belief in the fact that God made a covenant with Adam in the garden. One of the first uh, theologians in the Reformation to more fully and deeply develop the idea and the doctrine of the covenant of works was Franciscus Junius. He died in uh, 1602. The term covenant of works, however, uh, was first coined by uh, Dudley Finner, 1558 to 1587, and very close after him, uh, Amandus Polanus, 1561 to 1610. He was a uh, teacher uh, in the city of Basel, and he, in the Latin, coined the term fetus opera, which means the covenant of works. The very first appearance of it, the very first uh, time that the relationship between God and Adam was called not just a covenant, but a covenant that was works-based. And this term fetus operarum uh, becomes a foundational principle in the uh, not just the growth and development of covenant theology, but its establishment in the Reformation. Um, the term itself, again, being first communicated by Dudley Fenner, uh, may have had its roots in other theologians, another uh, Thomas Cartwright, 1535 to 1603, uh, who look, perhaps learned it from someone else. Uh, we don't have all of the historical information that we would like to have. Um, Johannes Cosius uh, demonstrates perhaps the most mature development of the doctrine of the covenant of works, and he was the earliest to demonstrate that. He was uh, 1603 to 1669. Uh, John Calvin translated Hosea 6-7 as they like men, but never, nevertheless recognized even in that passage that uh, even if you translate it as men, it doesn't detract from the fact that God did make a covenant with Adam. Calvin, uh, in his Institutes, also demonstrates a recognition that God's relationship with Adam in the garden was a covenant, and more specifically, it was a covenant of works, a covenant based upon obedience and reward. The 17th century, as it began to progress towards the middle to the later end, was kind of the, the high point of the development of this doctrine, uh, and particularly uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, that was signed in 1647, uh, demonstrates a very mature understanding of the covenant of works. And then the particular Baptists following after them uh, in their uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, that's its publication date, but it was written in 1677, uh, they also demonstrate a clear, mature understanding of the covenant of works, even though the term covenant of works appears uh, just a couple times. The substance of that covenant, though, is found all throughout the Confession of Faith. So that's a little bit of the history behind the term covenant of works and uh, the recognition that God's relationship with Adam in the garden was covenantal in nature. Now, a definition. How do we rightly define the covenant of works? Well, Richard Barcelos, he's a Reformed Baptist pastor uh, in California, in his book, The Covenant of Works, its confessional and scriptural basis, defines the covenant of works in this, in this way. He says that the covenant of works is that divinely sanctioned commitment 
or relationship that God imposed upon Adam, who is a sinless representative of mankind, a public person, an image-bearing son of God conditioned upon his obedience with a penalty for disobedience, all for the bettering of man's estate. There's a lot involved in that definition, just kind of breaking it down a little bit. Uh, this covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship that leads us to our definition of a covenant, right? A legal contract, a divinely imposed agreement. God is the active party, the greater party, the, the suzerain figure, and man is the uh, passive, lesser vassal party brought into uh, this commitment with God, and it's a relational commitment. It establishes relationship between God and man. And God made it with Adam, specifically in the Garden of Eden. And the, the language that Richard Barcellus uses here is he was a sinless representative of mankind, or another way of saying it is a public person. The idea of Adam in that state being a representative of mankind is where uh, some of the early covenant theologians got their idea for federal uh, head, federal being a representative person. Uh, and that's why um, uh, the historic Reformed Baptist covenant theology was called 1689 federalism. It's representing the federalistic nature, the representative nature in uh, the covenants of scripture, particularly the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. So Adam is a representative. We see that in Romans. We'll look at that in detail when we get there. The idea of Adam being the first Adam. And when he sinned, all sinned with him. The curse that fell upon him fell upon us. The guilt and condemnation that fell upon him has fallen upon us. And that, that's the idea of a representative person, a federal head, as he did so did we all. And we'll unpack and um, develop that more fully in the future. Richard Barcellus, in his definition, says that uh, there was a condition based upon his obedience. Again, covenants have conditions. And then the idea of promises, blessings, that one earns or merits based upon keeping the condition. Uh, and then the threatened curses, uh, the definition a penalty for disobedience. And one of the most important ideas behind God's covenantal relationships is, is he, he doesn't establish them just to uh, create relationship between God and man. He, he has something uh, in uh, the covenants, a, a purpose that uh, Richard Marcellus captures here. And, and he, he words it all for the bettering of man's estate. That that is fundamentally behind why God has covenanted with man, that he has provided a, an avenue, a pathway for man to better his situation and his state, which is, again, fundamental to every single covenant of Scripture. We'll talk about in the covenant of works that the state in which Adam was born uh, was a state in which he was able to sin and able to die. The reward of that covenant was that he, he had opportunity to, through his obedience, reach a higher level of life in which he could no longer sin, in which he could no longer die. 
And then the other covenants of Scripture in the Old Testament are centered around this idea that these covenants, if obedience uh, is performed, the temporal blessings that came along with them would better the state of those people. Dusty. So is there like some time frame of for that probationary period of, That's a great question, one that theologians have wrestled with and wrestled with. Um, scripture nowhere gives an indication to the length of time. It probably wasn't very long. Um, I, I've seen some theologians say it was perhaps the same day or the next day. Um, so we don't know, but um, again, there, there is the debate on a probationary period uh, in general. Was there a probationary period? Was there not? I personally believe that there was, uh, and we'll talk more about that in, in detail. Um, but yeah, scripture doesn't give any indication of the length of time that was required. Uh, obviously, it was a reasonable amount of time. It was a fixed, finite amount of time um, because, you know, Adam, if it was an infinite period of time, would never right. reach that. Right. So, yeah. Mike, you had a, a question, comment? Yeah, that's a great question. I've wondered the same thing. How long was Adam um, to perform uh, the obedience that was required of him? Um, scripture doesn't say, therefore, it's not an important point for us to know, even though it would be fascinating to know. Um, so this covenant of works, again, that definition, I'll read it again. It is a, that divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship God imposed upon Adam, who is a sinless representative of mankind public person, an image-bearing son of God, conditioned upon his obedience with a penalty for disobedience, all for the bettering of man's estate. So that's, that's kind of a summary of uh, what this covenant is, and we're going to again be going into detail uh, about uh, the covenant. Before we move on to looking at objections, any more comments or questions?
example, it would, would have been really silly if the, if the time period was, say, one week. And, if, you know, it, and it was clear that on day eight there would have been some great sin, but ooh, he made it in just under the bar. Um, the, the point was the reward was earned by fulfillment of, uh, of, of the demands of righteousness. And the punishment was um, uh, was based on the rejection of the kingship of God. More about the condition than it is about the particularized time frame. Yeah, and I agree with that. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Yeah, I, I do believe that God um, not was not just aware that the fall was going to happen, but it was part of his eternal decree, uh, which is why um, the covenant of redemption was right before anything was created. It demonstrates not just God's knowledge, not just looking through the corridor of time to see what's going to happen in the future, but he ordained these things uh, to, to happen, and it was been, uh, revealing himself in ways that uh, God would not be able to be known uh, outside of the fall and the gospel. Um, and I do think that uh, there, there perhaps is uh, some foreshadowing of that in the, the creation account that you know, life uh, was not uh, going to be forever. Uh, obviously, it was uh, created to be that way from the beginning. Adam uh, was created to live forever. All of us were created to live forever, but for the fall. Um, so, uh, either way, God in his sovereignty and in his uh, infinite knowledge and wisdom and eternal decree, yes, did plan and ordain. Uh, and, you know, that gets into the, the area of uh, superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism, which is a, a rabbit hole. Um, but anyways, um, any other questions or comments? Yes, Aaron. Just one real quick. I've heard the idea of that probationary period come up several times. Mm. Where does that idea come from? I think it comes from the fact that the covenant itself uh, required uh, conditions of obedience and promised something, uh, which indicates that uh, because something is promised, there must be an end to it. And I think also the fact that all of mankind uh, was represented by Adam also feeds into it that Adam was designed to perform obedience uh, representatively for all of us. And that if Adam performed, then we would receive the blessings. Um, if we didn't perform and Adam did, we would still receive the blessings. Because Adam, again, as he did, so did we all. Uh, and the idea that uh, he was functioning representatively, even though mankind, you know, they were being born. Um, I think it, it, it's clear that um, God's cultural mandate connected to that. I think indicates that it was designed to be performed before more human beings were present on the earth because their their obedience personally um, hinged upon Adam's um, which I think again indicates a temporary time period now, there's a lot of discussion and debate and there are people in reform circles that reject the idea of a probationary period uh, but it is by far the majority some of it comes from the, the connection between Adam and Christ. As we're taught in Adam and Christ, that Christ was the, the second 
necessary in, in, implication from recognizing what Christ did as the as the perfect Adam. Uh, that Adam could, in, in theory, could have done that if he satisfied the same demands that Christ ultimately <coughs> satisfied. That is uh, so the uh, the probationary period is largely by implication. And yep. uh, since our questioner, I know is a Westminster Westminster guy, it's 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 recognized in the in the confessions and. Um, and Westminster says in chapter 7, section 2, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him uh, to posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So the implication was that there was an opportunity for him to satisfy that con condition. That's the probationary period. Yes, I'm going to real quick comment on that and then I'll take your question. Uh, the fact that Jesus was born under the covenant of works and kept it, and that's the obedience that is granted to each of us by faith, and Christ did it for a limited period of time, 33 years, illustrates the fact that that, that covenant originally was designed to have a, uh, a fixed amount of time uh, of obedience required for it. Caitlin. I think Eve is that great example. You know, Eve, uh, her disobedience didn't trigger the consequences of the fall. It was Adam's. And that if Adam had performed obedience, then Eve's sin perhaps would have been covered. Perhaps. It, it's, it's, there's been a lot of debate over that because like Eve was not in the, in the same covenantal relationship with God that uh, Adam was. Adam was operating unique, different, uh, and that Eve, just like all of us, were represented by Adam, and that it was Adam's sin, Adam's fall, um, that triggered. And you could see the account where Eve took, and nothing happened, she gave it to Adam, and then their eyes were open. So uh, I think it, it's interesting seeing that, that, that Eve is, I think, a, a great example for us in that we would have been just like her. We would have said right away, yes? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it, it's it's interesting thinking about the implications, and you, know, you can only go so far in dogmatically saying this is for sure what we know would happen. But you reach the point where you know, what if Adam had obeyed and had merited all that was promised, but Eve had sinned? So obviously hypothetical, but it's interesting. Um, any other questions or comments? Yes, Dusty. I don't want to stay on the rabbit trail too long. No, that's but, fine. We, we're great. But this is that's kind of ultimately the point that I. The struggle I have that I, with my question was if the covenant of redemption already foreknew that Adam would fall 
how does that interplay with a probationary period that really did never actually have any chance of happening? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so was Adam doomed to fall from the start? Yeah, right. All right. Yes. Do you really have a chance if you know the outcome? I think from God's point of view, no. But from man's point of view, everything was set before him. It completely depended upon him. And what would fall upon mankind was his responsibility. He had every, you know, the ball was completely in his court. Uh, and I think in that you see uh, the the kindness of God. And we'll, we'll talk about this when we get to speaking more specifically about the representative nature of Adam. You know, how awful would it be if all of us were born in that same relationship with God that Adam was, and we all had to perform perfect obedience for a probationary period and then merit whatever uh, was promised. The fact that everyone was summed up in Adam was a mercy. That we all wouldn't have uh, to perform that perfect obedience ourselves. Um, but yeah, the covenant of redemption being ratified even before these things uh, clearly emphasizes the fact that uh, the covenant of works was set in motion knowing that Adam would fall, but it was set in motion with a far-reaching uh, purpose of uh, the one who was to come, second Adam, would live under that same covenant and would perform all that Adam failed to perform. And so it's, it's not that God was, you know, setting in motion, motion something that was doomed. He was setting in motion something that would lead to the fall, that would lead to hope in the gospel. Because he could have just sent Christ as the first Adam to be that probationary. Like if there yep. was, and then he could have earned it right then. But yeah. to me, the, that's the interesting part, is that he didn't send Christ. He sent somebody that would fall. Yep. Sin so that Christ could come yep. as the Savior. Yep. And even though that first Adam, you know, had had the ability to sin, had the ability to die in the implication of that, but the flip side of it is he had the ability not to sin, which is a huge distinction from us. Um, and then you get into the question of the second Adam, you know, could 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 Jesus sin? No. He's God. So in that way, you see a parallel between Adam and Christ in one sense. They both had the ability not to sin, but Christ is far greater because he didn't bear the ability to sin. Um, so, yeah, the covenant of works is, is set in motion in light of the covenant of redemption with the, the idea that God had already, had already ordained the fall and all that would transpire from it and looking ahead to the, uh, the work of Christ. That would come. Uh, it, it's astonishing thinking about all of this and thinking, well, God could have done differently. And yes, he could, but he didn't. And beginning to ask yourself the question, why did he not do it any other way? Why did he uh, ordain and uh, sovereignly allow the fall to occur according to what he had ordained? Fall into sin and the curse and death come and give life rather than, as Dusty was saying, that one come first and win it for us all, even before we were born. Um, God's purpose is far higher uh, than ours, and I think fundamentally it comes back to God is a God who, through all of this, is really focused on <coughs> revealing himself, is really focused on his own glory, and that God uh, is able to uh, receive glory uh, 
in saving some and damning others. Uh, I think Romans 9 is very clear. You know, what if God was willing uh, to endure with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And the end of that is he has a higher purpose in the display of his glory in his wrath. Uh, but then also, um, I don't think we would truly know um, the love of God, the holiness, the righteousness, the justice of God. And so the fall and fallen mankind apart from Christ, the, the reprobate was part of God's plan and design to reveal himself more thoroughly, more exhaustively to his people, uh, even though what God has revealed uh, is a tiny bit of a very, very infinite God. Any other questions or comments? Josh? Um, would you say that from our human perspective in the Garden of Eden, uh, that Adam, Adam had no sense of illustrations of uh, the gospel and the character of God in display in the gospel, the love, the mercy, the kindness of God, um, that those things uh, are uh, most brilliant when they're a light placed in the midst of great darkness, uh, and that the fall was God's means of not just revealing more thoroughly himself, but revealing himself in a way that um, struck deeper into the heart of mankind, um, that he in the midst of uh, the fall and the curse and death and sin and wickedness and depravity um, shown forth uh, light, uh, and that Christ being the light of the world and uh, displaying the character of God towards uh, sinners, saving them, and how much more brilliant and glorious those things are in light of the world. Um, God's purposes are so far beyond ours. Um, we, we, we can think how we would do things differently, and yet God's purposes are always right and good, uh, and obviously are all for his own glory and for the good of uh, his people. So, Any other questions or comments? Israel. So 
he had to save that, that, that state. So uh, Pharaoh, in his pride and arrogance, is, is thinking, who is this God that I should obey him? And yet, unknown to him, he is really doing what God wanted him to do in order that God would reveal himself uh, by those wonderful uh, ten, ten plagues that, that displays him. And at the same time, he displays his amazing grace to an undeserving people, namely Israel, by rescuing them. So no wonder he says, you know, uh, at the end of the day, you say to him, then who is resisting his will? Because if you're saying everything is God's will, you know, and everything is happening, and then he cautions him, be careful. You're not speaking about another human being. This is God. Yeah. And, and you need to come with respect and worship uh, and bow down before the Almighty One who has the right to do what he wants to do with his creation. Theologians use uh, the terms, the decretive will of God and the preceptive will of God. You know, the decretive will of God is everything he's ordained to occur. And that's the good and then the evil, which is accomplished through secondary means and causes. But his preceptive will is what is right, his moral law. Uh, and you see uh, in scripture the difference between that and um, the account that you shared, the abiding principle of how God used Pharaoh and a wicked man, but yet used him as a means of revealing himself. That abiding principle helps us to see what God is about in the midst of everything that he's doing. That uh, even in the midst of using, you know, Babylon, he was revealing his wrath and hatred of sin against the nation of Israel and that God God in his his sovereignty is even able to channel the hearts of wicked men to bring about his purpose of revealing himself and uh, receiving glory um, and that those things sometimes are hard for us to wrap our minds around you know but yet that's what God has done and is doing and will do in history so. all right we will wrap up our time by beginning to look at the objections to the covenant of works. Uh, primarily three different objections are brought against the idea of the covenant of works. And I referred to one of them. Uh, the first is the word covenant does not appear in this account. In the Hebrew, the word covenant is the word bereath. Uh, and I talked about that at the very beginning of our uh, covenant theology series. And uh, the word bereath means to cut a covenant. And the word bereath doesn't appear until uh, Genesis 6, when God is uh, telling Noah what he's about to do and sending the flood on the earth and sends uh, them to make the ark and then enter the ark and, and tells Noah that he's going to make a covenant with him. And that promise uh, is what motivated, among other things, Noah to obey and to do what God had told him to do. And then that covenant was ratified after the flood uh, in Genesis 8 and 9. But the word covenant doesn't appear to that point. And one of, again, the arguments against the covenant of works is that if the word covenant doesn't appear, 
then it can't be a covenant. Um, this is a poor argument. Um, one of the classic response examples in uh, dealing with that is that the subject of, of the Trinity. The Trinity is an implied doctrine of Scripture. And yet, through the observation of what we see in Scripture and the uh, passages that list all three persons of the Trinity at the same time, uh, we uh, recognize that God is three persons and yet one. Uh, and we recognize that uh, church history, uh, through the various heresies and conflicts that they were uh, encountering had to rightly define and summarize what scripture teaches. And the term that they used was Trinity, describing who God is. And in the early days of the church, the identity of God was primarily one of the great battles. Uh, is God three persons, three different persons, modalism and so many other things uh, the, the early church had to rightly define um, who God is and they used the word Trinity and even though the word Trinity is not a biblical term we recognize that it is a uh, an accurate depiction of what scripture teaches and the same is true of the words covenant of works which again don't appear in the account in Genesis and in fact that the words covenant of works don't appear in scripture a single time it's a recognition of what Scripture as a whole teaches, and words are used to describe that. Uh, words that, again, are extra-biblical, but words that are a summary, uh, just as our confessions of faith use often non-biblical words and phrases to summarize the true teaching of Scripture. So the idea that the word covenant not appearing here in Genesis 3 means that it's not a covenant is a poor argument when the pieces to our definition of a covenant are found here and in other places in Scripture that are referring to God's relationship with Adam in the garden. So objection one, that the word covenant not being here means it's not a covenant is a poor argument. And we will use Scripture act that God did make a covenant of works with Adam. Is Yes. Hosea the, the primary text, or are there other ones that, that you use to? Hosea 6 7 is yeah. one of the primary ones. Uh, there are numerous passages in Romans, uh, Romans 5, uh, and we're going to get to those. We're not going to get to them this week, okay. but we should be into them uh, next week because we'll be dealing with Genesis 2, answering the questions um, of a covenant, and then getting into material uh, that looks at other passages of Scripture. So, yes. So, that's objection number one. Any comments or questions about that? All right, objection number two. So the second objection, again, rejecting the idea of a covenant of works, is that there's no evidence of God swearing an oath to Adam. Again, an oath is an important part of uh, a covenant. It's part of our definition. Uh, and it's important to, to ask the question, why, why is there not an oath present there? And does that mean it's not a covenant? Um, as I said, Scripture often doesn't intend to be thorough and exhaustive in recounting uh, events in history. Um, it will often highlight the important things, but it doesn't have to be exhaustive or thorough. 
Um, the fact that there isn't an oath present here does not mean it's a covenant, uh, because there's another covenant in Scripture in the account of it, that no oath is mentioned explicitly, and yet it is a covenant, and Scripture elsewhere refers to the fact that um, God made an oath. And that covenant is the Davidic covenant. Uh, in the accounts uh, where God is uh, communicating the details and ratifying that covenant with David, there's no reference or mention of an oath. But when you get into the Psalms, Psalm 89, turn there with me, Scripture speaks and testifies to the fact that God did swear an oath to David in this covenant. So Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then again, verse 34 and 35. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. So again, just because uh, the Davidic covenant never explicitly mentions in the account in which it was being ratified that God made an oath doesn't mean that God didn't. Scripture infallibly testifies to the fact that God did. C.H. Hodge, in commenting upon uh, the covenant of works, writes that God made to Adam a promise suspended upon condition and attached to disobedience a certain penalty. This is what the, the scriptural language is... Uh, this is what in scriptural language is meant by a covenant, and this is all that is meant by the term. Uh, and some theologians have argued that the fact that a promise in a covenant is made, in a sense, is a swearing of an oath. God is promising something, and his promise is looking back upon his, his character, his attributes, his faithfulness, his truthfulness, and that in a sense if God is making a promise, it's as if he is swearing. Uh, so the fact that an oath is not explicitly present in this account does not mean uh, that it's a covenant. Again, uh, this is not a valid objection. The third objection, uh, not as common uh, an objection, uh, but still one that's out there, um, again, rejecting the covenant of works because uh, God's relationship with Adam uh, was not legal and meritorious, but fatherly and gracious. Uh, one of the Reformed Baptist theologians to uh, put forward this view is Greg Nichols, uh, who I know, um, and he's a, he's a great uh, systematic theologian, but I disagree with him here. Again, he's arguing that the covenant of works is not a covenant because it's a fatherly relationship, not legal and meritorious, uh, which I, again, reject. Uh, and he uses the language uh, describing God's relationship with Adam as being a filial relationship, a father-son relationship, which I, I believe is true, that in that sense you see that father-son relationship. And then back Richard Rosellis in his definition of a covenant alludes to that, calling Adam an image-bearing son of God. Uh, that language, Son of God, is scriptural. Uh, Luke uh, 3.38 declares that Adam was the Son of God, lowercase s, but yet he was a Son of God in that he bore the image of God and was created by God. 
So there is a sense in which the, the relationship between God and Adam was filial, father, son. Um, but filial and legal, legal being covenantal, are not opposed to each other. In fact, every single covenant in Scripture could be said to be a filial relationship. The one with Adam is explicitly so, and Scripture is very clear in uh, speaking of it in that way. But again, filial is not opposed to legal, and it's not a valid objection to the covenant of works. Again, these are the three best arguments against the covenant of works. Whole systems of theology are built upon one or more of these objections. Whole systems of covenant theology are built upon these objections, which is why I'm mentioning them. Caitlin. That's a great question. Um, I'm not as well read in those areas yet. Um, it's on my list, but um, I think the idea behind why they're rejecting that sort of relationship is that they don't believe that God could ever make a covenantal relationship with man that man could not keep. Man could not keep it. And they're, they're speaking of that, obviously, within the uh, context of the covenant of works afterwards existing upon all mankind, that God could not keep man in that covenant in their fallen state because you, know, you and I are born already sinful because of Adam. We're born already still under that covenant of works until we look to Christ by faith. God could not um, keep us under a covenant like that uh, in their minds if we're unable to perform it. And then they extrapolate that backwards into, well, if God knew that the fall was going to happen, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have. Dusty. And, and I think if, if you knock out the covenant of works as basically being the abiding covenant for the entire Old Testament, mm -hmm. it opens the door to dispensationalism where yeah. now the are thing instead, yes. and so it, it shifts that entire yes. perspective of the Old Testament. And that's a very important point because some of these newer covenant theology positions are trying to merge covenant theology and dispensational theology together and find a middle ground, um, which historically, uh, trying to find a middle ground between theological um, extremes uh, is never a good idea. Novelty is it, never it a good idea. Burning at the stake. <laughs> right. In the past, yes. In, uh, today, um, people are very innovative in trying to uh, take theological systems that are opposed to each other and finding a middle ground. Uh, and I do believe that you know, your comment, Dusty, is getting at the heart of why there is a, a rejection of covenant of works by some, even in Reformed Baptist uh, circles, uh, is that um, that covenant, uh, as I was saying, is, is um, God requiring a man what he couldn't, what he couldn't perform, but, but also that um, you know, God is, um, how did you word it, Dusty? The very beginning. Uh, <laughs> about what? About the covenant? Yeah. Just the. If oh, the not, overarching theme. Yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah the, the, the idea that uh, when you take that out, then the, what connects the Old Testament covenants together um, is no longer there, and it's one step till you're in the land of dispensationalism. Um, the covenant of works is what connects every covenant of Scripture together. Um, theologians have, have made the argument that the covenant of grace 
is the covenant of works performed by someone else on our behalf, which is true. Um, and that if you don't have a covenant of works, it's not that you have a, you know, a, a soft foundation. You have no foundation. Um, if you believe that the law was first given on Mount Sinai, then why in the world did people die beforehand? Without the law, there is no sin. Without sin, there is no death. So you see the implications of this. Um, and the reason why we're spending time on this and answering these objections is because uh, if you get this wrong, the whole system that follows is going to be wrong. So other questions or comments? Josh and then... fatherly punishment rather than legal. Yeah, it, it's interesting, and I, I agree with that to an extent, but it's all it, it, it's all within that legal framework because it's not mutually exclusive. Right, yeah, like original sin, like you wouldn't have that unless, unless it was a legal agreement. You had a question? Yeah, there are uh, four other Yeah, that's the creation mandate, and uh, you know those principles are given at the beginning, and then they're reaffirmed uh, in the Noahic covenant, which we'll talk about when we get there. And that those principles were given to direct man and what they should be about. Um, and there, there is a lot of confusion, uh, even with those, that those are a covenantal relationship between God and Adam. Um, you'll see in some camps, uh, even in dispensationals, in their recognition that. What was binding Adam was the cultural mandate and the law of prohibition, and they completely leave the moral law out of it. So there, there's a lot of tangled, confused thinking, uh, and a lot of it is by people who are in no way connected to um, the development of covenant theology in the past, um, and often have no idea what um, people in the past have believed. And I agree with that, that man um, was created to, uh, to, again, the words doing good are very general, but specifically to fill the earth with image bearers of God and fill the earth with the presence of God, uh, and uh, also to you know, bring the earth under submission uh, and to exercise dominion. Um, so there, there are obviously many things uh, summed up in that and things that um, are creation ordinances, again, creation mandate, uh, commands that God gave that directs uh, not only Adam, but all of his descendants in what is our purpose on earth? Uh, question over here, Mike? Yeah, well, before we even get to being fruitful and multiplying and all those other things, Adam's also one about Eve and the tree, so those other commandments I know they can end there, mm -hmm. but that's the one that Adam broke, and then yeah. if you said that, that's that, that he knew. Yeah. And they really were 
I would say that these instructions for for uh, for Adam are not covenantal in nature. They're they're not uh, in the same category as that that single law of prohibition and the moral law. Um, they they are instructions, um, and they are um, very clear in what man is supposed to do. And again, they're repeated uh, with Noah uh, and the category um, as uh, the uh, the two conditions of uh, the covenant of works. Um, but they're in, they're, it's important to recognize their presence there, because again, it instructs man and in what they are supposed to do and supposed to be about on this earth. Um, and man has been um, about this from the beginning. So any other questions or comments? Yes? I think it's, sorry to interrupt you, um, I, I think it's fundamentally an error of recognizing what Christ kept. There, there's the wrong belief that Christ kept the old covenant and through that one righteousness for us. That is a very common belief, uh, but that's not, not true. Um, he kept those things. And keeping them brought an end to those covenants. But he kept the covenant of works being born under that so that all that Adam failed to earn, he would earn and merit for us. And see, that, that's fundamentally uh, why the covenant of works is so important to the gospel. If you do not have the foundation of a covenant of works, uh, it, it's not just you're going to misunderstand the Old Testament covenants. You're, you're going to completely lose your foundation for the gospel. Uh, and even what Christ did in his active obedience. Uh, so it's important. This, this is a hill worth dying on, um, a hill that um, uh, I'm discouraged in seeing people um, innovating uh, and um, rejecting uh, such a concept. So I, I pray that the Lord would um, keep those influences from influencing more people to reject that um, people would um, read the good old books on covenant theology, maybe even some good new ones, <laughs> um, and that the Lord would keep them from that great error. Um, this is something worth defending.